So what's weird is as an existentialist um, at the time, it relies a lot on like a faith in humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's what's one thing that will really destroy your faith in humanity is kind of being a victim of violent crime and having to go through months of like not being able to walk. Hello, the internet. You are listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. Um, I'm Luke T. Harrington. I'm an award-winning novelist, a best-selling humorist, and currently both my thumbs are thickly bandaged because I still have not figured out how to use a mandolin. Um, And of course, when I say mandolin, I'm talking about the kitchen implement, not the musical instrument. Although I also don't know how to play the mandolin. Um, But that's less embarrassing than the fact that I managed to slice my hands open every single time I try to get out the mandolin and make some potato chips. Um, But don't let my incompetence in the kitchen deter you from listening to this podcast um, because this podcast is awesome. Um, my guest this week was a guy named Joshua Kemble, um, who actually just published a memoir about his experience of changing his mind in a graphic novel form. Um, it's called two stories. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it on the show, but, um, short version is it actually is legitimately one of my favorite things I've read all year. Um, it's a very uh, heart-rending gut punch of a book, um, and it's just really about the struggle of being a human and dealing with the frailty inherent to living in a body and having a brain. Um, it's the uh, story of how he lost his Christian faith, um, became an atheist, and eventually found his way back to Christianity in a different way. It really goes deep into the intersection of spirituality and mental illness, which um, really kind of makes it right in my wheelhouse. Um, so if you like what I do, if you think you might have tastes similar to mine, um, I do encourage you to check out two stories, part one, it's going to be a series. Um, but I'm going to let Joshua tell you more about it. I'm going to go ahead and flip you over to our interview. And I will see you on the other side. Uh, Joshua, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Excited. Yeah, welcome. Um, Joshua is graphic designer, cartoonist, um, here primarily, or at least partially, to promote his new a uh, debut graphic novel, actually, um, which is called Two Stories, Part One. Um, if it's if it's only part one of two stories, wouldn't that just make it one story? <laughs> that's, uh, that's a fair point. Uh, I've been waiting to make that joke for several days now. Um, yeah, all, uh, all joking aside, though, this uh, graphic novel is legitimately one of my favorite things I've read this year. Um, it's very good. You should check it out. I'm, I'm 
always, I was telling Joshua this before we uh, started recording, um, but I'm always super nervous reading stuff uh, written by people I know a little bit. Um, we don't know each other well. We've been like connected on Facebook a few months, I think. But um, I am absolute garbage at pretending I like things I don't like. <laughs> so um, yeah, I was I was very pleased that this is actually a, uh, it's a really gripping read. Um I'm not sure entirely how to describe it. It's it's a uh, it's memoir, um, and it kind of bounces back and forth uh, between kind of um, w- when when does it take like your mid twenties, early thirties? Yeah, um, um, probably probably about my mid twenties, and then uh, the other sections are like you know from like third and fifth grade or something. So yeah, and it's this really fascinating contrast. Um, I mean, visually, it's a fascinating contrast because like the adult years are like kind of done in this I don't know like Dark Knight Returns style, kind of almost like a noir, um, and then the 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 flashbacks are like family circusy. It's pretty it's pretty pretty stinking cool, um, and it's just this fascinating contrast between like um facing you know mental illness and suicidal ideation as an adult versus like basically playground politics as a kid um and it's it's just it's really fascinating to see this this um juxtaposition of like what is trauma for an adult versus what is trauma for a kid with a relatively happy childhood um yeah, I loved it. I really did. Um, oh, thank you so much. I, I got I got to the end and I was like, crud, now I have to wait for part two. When is part two coming out, by the way? Um, so um, I'm aiming for a year and a half, but um, with cartooning, it tends to go at like a snail's pace um, because it's like, you know, you write like a sentence and it takes, you know, a week and a half to get that sentence done. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, but I am aiming for like a, a, a year and a half. So that's one advantage of like publishing with an indie is they're a lot more flexible with the school. So sure, um, sure. But I am you- for a year. Do you start with just a script and then work that into panels or do you do you just kind of make it up as you go? Yeah, so when I or is first, that a stupid question? No, I have no it's idea. A great question. <laughs> um, when I first started writing comics, uh, I, I like my favorite cartoonist is Chris Ware, and so I was like, I'm going to write like Chris Ware, where he just kind of writes as he goes, and he's uh-huh. brilliant at it. And I really quickly realized I'm not Chris Ware, um, <laughs> and so uh, with this book, I definitely kind of went back to school um, in the sense of like just kind of treating it like I would treat any serious writing. So mm-hmm. I, I draft a script, I get it edited. I have like five people I really trust that are English nerds, like help me out um, with like just kind of pointing out like, you know, redundancies or anything like that. And then from there, I I, I make the comic. So um, sure. and the art and stuff. But yeah, it's definitely one of those things where if I went as if I kind of wrote it as I went, uh, it would be really problematic if I if I took a wrong turn, because like I said, you know, a sentence can take like a week and a half. So mm-hmm. if you take a wrong turn in a graphic novel, it, it's especially if you're doing the art as you go like that would be really hard to edit (laughs) you know yeah no absolutely yeah i mean i i am not an artist um i can't draw to save my life um there was a time when i was like 14 when i was like i want to be a cartoonist and i started cartooning and i i was absolute garbage at it uh which is why i'm a writer slash podcaster now but um you know someone speaking of someone who's written a novel or three um there is a lot to be said for uh, planning out beforehand. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I mean, in the heat of the moment when you're when you're writing the prose, it's um, 
it, it very much helps to have at least a vague idea of where it's headed. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And that, um, that's hard. Like to me, I think one of the things that is really impressive when something's mapped out is like when you can try to kind of allow yourself also the, the creative space to kind of diverge mm-hmm. from the plan. Um, right. Yeah. It's not like, the the purpose the reason for having a plan is not like to follow it like the bible or whatever exactly. so you have something to work from um so you know when and how you sh- can and should deviate right totally um yeah i uh, <laughs> i um tried to do i tried to do NaNoWriMo national novel writing month this year um which for you know listeners who who don't know i don't know if you know maybe you don't um but for anyone who doesn't know uh it's about a it's it's a 20 year old tradition or so that some got some guy started it you know in the early uh early 2000s that he said you know everybody should write a novel in november and the idea is you start writing your book on the first of november and you crank it out to the end by the 30th um you know and the, the the goal isn't to have like a publishable novel just like a draft that you can like fix later on yeah um anyway i tried to do that this year i was gonna do some planning in october to get ready for it i i tried writing some outlines some treatments some character sketches that sort of thing but i i got to the first of november and realized that every idea i had was absolute garbage and i was just gonna have to wing it um and the short version of that is it did not go well (laughs) (laughs) um I did not finish it. I'm I'm still actually working on it. I'm writing writing you know a few pages a day just to see where it goes. But um, yeah, the the official quote unquote official goal of NaNoWriMo is to get a fifty thousand word draft written. I got about thirty thousand, and you know it's like I still have no idea what the shape of the story is. So I couldn't even tell you if I'm like a tenth of the way through or like ninety percent of the way through. I have no friggin' clue. Huh. <laughs> To me, I think like the cool thing about challenges like that, like there's one in comics called like the hundred days making comics where you're supposed uh-huh. to like try to do, you know, uh, 30 minutes a day or whatever and spend it on comics, which, which anybody who does graphic novels, like seriously, like that's, that's not enough time. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but it's really good for people who are like kind of hesitating or like maybe, uh, allowing themselves like artist block. Uh, mm-hmm. To kind of like sit down and do the work and then like get that inspiration to strike. So I think like uh, it's cool that there's like, you know, there's challenges like that out there for like artists uh, to kind of get over whatever hurdle to like make mm-hmm. the next thing. But mm-hmm. I also like I'm not a big fan of like kind of trying to fit those challenges to a T because it, it almost like supersedes the whole point of them, you know? <laughs> right. But to me, like 30,000 like words a month, that's, that's no uh, laughing at her. Like that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, I could have done worse for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I will say my, um, my first novel, uh, which is, which is actually my like one published novel. Um, <laughs> I did crank that out in a month. Um, not in November. I did it in a January one year, um, nice. but it was also, it was also my very first like attempt at like serious writing you know like i before i wrote that i had never done i i had never really done anything outside of like writing for school or blocking you know and i was like so there was a hurdle there for me like i need to get over this and get this cranked out um and it was also like the only thing I had going on in my life, aside from my day job at the time. Like, yeah, <laughs> um, I was at the time I was I was um, 
uh, managing a warehouse, you know, which is a pretty mindless job, you know, just doing inventory and shipping and stuff for a warehouse. And my wife, who is a, well, at the time was a, was a floor nurse. Um, she was working like a, this weird shift where she was at work from like noon to 11 PM every day. And we were sharing a car, you know, so I was working like a normal eight to five schedule and she was working evenings and we didn't have kids. So it was like, I didn't have anything, any obligations at all in the evening. You know, I could just go straight from work to the coffee shop, set up my laptop and write for five hours every night if I needed to. Um, and obviously like everything has changed since then. Um, you know, now we have two kids where both working from home under quarantine, it's very weird. And, you know, I have like an actual writing career, um, that has actual obligations. So actually fitting in like, you know, a 10 page a day quota is like a lot harder now than it was. Um, yeah. I wrote my first book. So, you know, I, I didn't necessarily, <laughs> I didn't necessarily start NaNoWriMo thinking I'm definitely going to finish this in a month, no matter what it takes. <laughs> um, which was kind of my attitude with the first book, but, yeah. um, you know, so things have changed and I'm okay with the fact that I didn't quote unquote win. That's, that's what they call it with NaNoWriMo. If you finish your book, you win. Um, I'm okay with that. Um, cause I have, I have other things going on so yeah and it'll be like hopefully like a good launching board for for whatever the next thing is or at least allow you some exploration you know to like come up with the next thing so i think that's cool um, yeah i also like totally relate to the <laughs> to the time to kind of to create uh because like most of this book um was created you know like between like 9 p.m and like two in the morning uh-huh. Um, just carving away like little bits at a time uh, because I, I I'm an art director like full time and then uh, and then we also have a kid so it's like sort of like my work time and my creative time is pretty much like when he's asleep <laughs> and so yeah. um, that's like to me I think um, the, the hard part and the part that I think is important for people who are writers or whatever is just like showing up and being consistent about it right and you know I, I think if you can you know, it, it's cool. I mean, obviously you're doing it professionally. So it's like, you, you probably have a good habit built, but, right. uh, but like for me, it was, that was a real big um, thing for me too, as, as a cartoonist was like trying to kind of discipline myself to where I would spend the amount of time to actually get the work, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's probably the biggest hurdle for aspiring writers, artists, whatever is, you know, learning to give yourself the space and the time to actually do it. Um, I think, I think for a lot of people, like the, the, the biggest problem is that they, they sit down and the inspiration doesn't come and they think, Oh, something's wrong with me or, you know, I'll come back when I'm actually inspired, but it's like, no, you don't actually know when the muse is going to show up. You just need to make the space for it. Exactly. Um, you just need to say, Hey, I'm going to start writing at this time every day and not quit until like I've, I've been in my chair for three hours or like I've written five pages or whatever, you yeah. know, just have some sort of goal. And it's like, it's okay to write garbage because you can clean it up later. You know, um, yeah. it is a million times better to have something on the page than to have nothing on the page. <laughs> <laughs> for sure yeah like even with this book like the second book um while this was being shopped like proposal because i had the outline worked out you know but mm -hmm. um but the first book i had written the full script of and then while this the proposal for this was being chopped out that's when i was writing the second uh second book 
And just like going through iterations of that, like if you saw earlier versions of that script, like compared to what it's going to be, it, it, you would have laughed. I mean, like, and I oh, think sure. most writers may maybe not so much because I think our first iterations are usually junk. Um, but it was, but it was really cool um, in that process where you're like showing up and you're kind of writing and it comes out terrible. Um, there's just this cool moment where like weird things started happening where like you know titles of chapters started taking on this like poetic like mm-hmm. nature mm-hmm. and like just weird ideas that i i can't even attribute to myself kind of started happening uh just from like going through the like the the revisions and and like different iterations of the script where finally it like it worked out but it is weird how like um and and i always find that fascinating i'm sure it's probably similar to like art where like as an illustrator, you'll get this job. You have no idea how to draw it. And you just kind of go, well, I, I will take that because I need the work. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then you sure. do it and you end up like being able to draw the thing. You were like, I don't really know how to draw like a giant <laughs> crowd scene or whatever. And then you draw a crowd scene and you're like, oh, I guess I, I know how to do that now. Yeah, I, yeah. And and I feel like there's there's kind of like got to be a lot of that with writing too, where it's like, I don't really know what I'm taking on here. And then you kind of start and you're like, wow, this is not working. And then eventually it just kind of works. And you're like, oh, I guess I'm a writer, (laughs) you know, like it's kind of an interesting, cool thing that happens, I think, creativity. And the thing I like about it too, is it's not really black and white where, um, you know, it's all spelled out and, and mm-hmm. whatnot. you know, like it, it, there's, there's a lot of gray in, in creativity and it. I like that a lot. Sure. Uh, yeah. You learn by doing right. Um, and yeah. that's, I mean, it's true, true of creative stuff. It's true. It's true of everything really. Yeah. I mean, like you talk to any lawyer, you know, ask them if three years of law school really prepared them for, um, <laughs> you know, combing through documents or presenting evidence in court. And it's like, well, <laughs> Not really, right? Like it gave, maybe gave them the foundation of knowledge that they needed to do it, but yeah. they still had to get in years and years of practice before they really had a feel for it. Totally. You know, um, or like cooking, you can read as many recipes as you want, but until you're actually in the kitchen, um, I don't know, this this analogy is probably getting away from me or whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, we should probably, probably get into what we're talking about, but real quick, one more time, uh, please do check out Josh's book, uh, Two Stories. Uh, it is available now when this podcast goes live. Um, it's, it's, it's great. Um, I guess what we're going to talk about here is kind of the story that two stories is based on, um, i.e. your life. Um, so maybe this is spoilers. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, uh, you came to me and you said you'd really like to talk about your, um, your deconversion from Christianity and eventually your reconversion to Christianity, um, which is, you know, the, the gist of the book, um, or at least, you know, uh, the, the book that's out is part of the story. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, why why don't we start at the beginning? Um, I, (laughs) I related to this book a little bit. Um, not that I've, I've experienced any of the trauma you have. I've had a almost, uh, embarrassingly easy life. Um, (laughs) but I related to, uh, the early story, uh, pr- pretty well because I, I, I felt I grew up going to a, a Christian elementary school and I always kind of felt like I was the goody two shoes of that school, um, which is, I don't know if there's anything more embarrassing than to be the goody two shoes at the Christian school. I don't know. <laughs> totally. Um, but why don't, why don't you start, why don't you start with that? Um, cool. Tell me about that. 
Yeah. So, um, and, and I'll, I'll frame this in a way that hopefully can lead to some of the reasons I, I kind of abandoned my faith. Um, but, uh, but, um, so like growing up in, in I grew up in a Christian household, um, and I'd say like fairly intellectual Christians, like my dad was like a Francis Schaeffer type Christian, he had like five, I don't even know how many, but I think it was about five college degrees, um, yeah, sure. ranging from like architecture to like, uh, to, um, philosophy and i believe uh graphic design and and a bunch of other things oh wow <laughs> um, history yeah. too and then he had gone to seminary too so he was <laughs> a pretty brilliant man and very That's... like very much the type of person who like you come home from school with some idea that like your new idea like this is what i think and he'd play devil's advocate um, <laughs> and which actually helped me form a really uh rational uh, method of thinking and I, i'm sure everybody thinks their thinking is rational so. <laughs> um but anyhow like that so that i i do want to say like and then my mom was like an english teacher and an english major so i think that's part of why i even was drawn to comics is like you know i grew up with like a literal marriage between visual art and english like as as parents so it's like um when i when i found comics it was just like it just seemed like a no-brainer um, to have this as like a way of telling literary stories. Um, That's so weird. We basically had identical childhoods then. Oh, nice. <laughs> you know, my my dad got a master's in geology uh, before going to seminary, <laughs> getting a you know getting his MDiv uh, from a Presbyterian seminary. Nice. Uh, my mom was um, my mom was a deaf educator uh, before I was born. Like she had a she had her master's degree in deaf education. Um, has basically, you know, got got her got her bachelor's in English. Worked worked in deaf education for a while. Eventually, just became a like an interpreter, like a sign language interpreter for the public school system in in Lincoln, Nebraska. But anyway, oh, that's right. So yeah, we're <laughs> no wonder I liked your book. We're basically the same person. <laughs> um, yeah. So like, uh, so I just wanted to you know mention that because like a lot of what my idea of Christianity came from that kind of, I think was like a spoiled version of it um, was not from my family. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I want to be clear, like I, I have a, a family of like pretty legit um, believers who are like pretty rational, intelligent people. And, but um, it being the eighties, you know, they did fall a little bit for some of the satanic panic stuff. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and definitely were into the idea of like homeschooling, um, or doing like Christian schools and Christian education. So like initially, like when I was a kid, um, like my earliest memories, um, we had moved from like, I, I was born in Tarzana, California, and then we moved from there to, um, Texas because the whole graphic design industry had shifted to a uh, computer base. And my dad, like, because of all those degrees was just like, I'm not going back to school to like relearn how to do this thing. I'm just going <laughs> to take a gig at like a printing company. And mm-hmm. so we ended up in Texas in a, in a private Christian school where um, some of my earliest memories from that school are like learning why Texas should have seceded um, <laughs> and also learning how all the, you know, the forefathers of our country were Christian and how, um, evolution is like complete nonsense and uh like evolution's the enemy democrats are the enemy (laughs) republic and keep in mind this is a memory from kindergarten (laughs) (laughs) um and explaining why like you know the texan flag should fly higher than any flag and and very like 
uh, very much like a um, focus on the family type uh, type of education where it was like, you know, Christian radio, Christian everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so then we transferred. So then we moved back to California. Um, and in, in retrospect, I found out that that was partially because my parents, like even though at the time they were they were very right um, leaning, like politically, they found it really propagandistic and weird <laughs> living in Texas. Um, and so we moved back to California and in, in California, like my experience growing up in Christian school was um, very much like weird stuff where, uh, you know, like, like a lot of um, people who, who kind of grew up in that system, like we didn't have um, cable television and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so, and by the time we moved back too, we, we were not um, wealthy. We were pretty poor. Mm-hmm. And but my mom taught at the Christian school. And so that allowed me to be able to go to a private Christian school because she was teaching there as, as a um, first grade teacher at the time. Um, and so like while we were in school, um, I just was like, you know, I had these ideas from what I had been taught about how like language was bad and stuff like that. But but then I'd also have these little experiences of pop culture that I really connect to. So like a good example is like Back to the Future. Like I really uh, was obsessed with that movie because it's one of the few pop cultural movies I was allowed to watch. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I just thought it was so cool. So we created, you know, like playground games where we were kind of reinventing um, these these movies and stuff. And I couldn't use the word, the, the D word. And so because of that, um, I was kind of ostracized from the game that I had kind of created to kind of remake this, this film that I had seen. Cause there's, there's a very famous scene where Marty is like, I, I don't know if you can cuss on here. <laughs> so, oh, sure. Yeah. People okay. curse on the show all the time. Okay. Perfect. Um, Swear like a sailor. I don't care. Got it. So, so <laughs> Marty's like, damn it. I'm late for school. And I couldn't say that as a kid. And so I got kicked off the game. And um, what was weird was, I mean, that's just like one of the little stories I kind of tell. Um, but what was weird was overall just kind of my experience in the elementary school was very, very similar to uh, Texas, where it was kind of like learning this weird version of evolution. Uh, mm-hmm. That was a huge thing was like, I remember having, you know, spending like 30 minutes a day in almost every grade level. Um, and I was there from you know, first to sixth grade where they would talk about like, they'd break it down and they'd be like, you know, the fossil record doesn't back evolution. Um, the, uh, the irreducible complexity doesn't match with evolution. And then we'd learn, you know, we had chapel every week and in chapel, what was weird was like the bullies of my school were always propped up as like the holy people, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I kind of talk about a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was a lot of hypocrisy, which as a, even as a as a Christian now, I know as part of Christianity is is there is inevitably hypocrisy, right? We're mm-hmm. all kind of broken. Yeah. But um, it was very like works based in the sense of the way that the instructors and the school looked at Christianity. It was more like how you dressed mattered because mm-hmm. um, they had like a really strict dress code. Um, or like, were you listening to secular music? Like if you listen yeah. to secular music, then you were less holy than the people who were listening to like all the, all the approved Christianity TM bands, you know? <laughs> um, and so like, I, I, but I, but I did feel like I had this belief in God, but it was all based on the idea of works. 
And I, and I had enough, I mean, they were theologically sound enough to like say works weren't what mattered, Uh but in reality, in practice, they were very work-based. Like it was Uh just, it it was like the idea of like, if you dress the right way, if you during like, I also remember this in chapels and at the church I went to at the time too, um, it was the, the picture of um conservative christianity it was this big church at the time um it was uh like the assistant pastor actually used the church to become a, a um representative of the state um and like, in, and like a member of the legislature yeah 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 okay um and went on to become like a member of like the house of representatives um, <laughs> hmm. and uh I mean, like, it was weird because, like, it was not uncommon in that church to be told how to vote, who to vote for. Mm -hmm. Um, And once again, like, it was kind of about, um, even at that church, like, prayer requests, like, in the youth groups and in Sunday schools and stuff like that were always kind of about how holy you could make yourself look during the prayer request. Like, people didn't really talk about brokenness. Um, They didn't have a lot of vulnerability. Um, and keep in mind, this is just my kind of general glossing over it, you know. Sure, sure. Um, I believe there were some really sincere believers in this system. Um, but what was weird was there was definitely an element of propaganda to it. Because, like, even all my history classes in elementary school were talking about the same thing. Like, where it's like America it was this Christian nation founded by Christian believers, Um you know, like, it, you know, everybody who came here, like, all of the pilgrims were all Protestants Mm -hmm. and uh, they all agreed theologically in the same God and kind of came here. So that's kind of my background in school. Um, And I just constantly remember as a kid being racked with guilt because Mm -hmm. I felt like, you know, when we had prayer requests, I was like, I don't really feel great all the time. And yet like Mm -hmm. when we're doing these prayer circles um, and doing prayer requests, it's like, if you even said like, Hey, I'm struggling you know, like, I don't know, it's like sixth grade, right? And as, mm-hmm. a, as a young man in sixth grade, you, well, not a young man, as a kid in sixth grade, <laughs> you have weird hormonal things that are happening. If you even talked about that, <laughs> you were just ostracized. Like you were just looked at like you were this weird person, which in retrospect, I, I just realized like all the other sixth graders were just smart enough to lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd say like, you know, I'm struggling with this kind of thought or this kind of thing in a prayer request. And people would kind of look at me like, well, I'm just like struggling with just being so good to my neighbor, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so anyhow, um, needless to say, like I, I ended up transferring to a, a public school which was really helpful. Um, and, th- and this was when? Like high school, middle school? Middle school. Okay. So, um, f- well, before that, actually, it's like I was kind of this squeaky clean kid. And I and I met um, I met a really close friend of mine who I'm still friends with today. Um, and he's a character in the book. Uh, and he kind of taught me how to cuss. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and kind of presented, like, sort of sided with me because there was a lot of bullying in elementary school, too. And, you know, physical um, fights and stuff like that, that where mm-hmm. I was, I was kind of not the winning side. Um, <laughs> and so I was sort of a man without a country at the school where I felt really isolated. I was a geek. I was really into comic books which isolates you enough. But then also I was really sincerely trying to kind of practice as a Christian and, and Mm -hmm. that kind of isolated me as well. 
Um, and so, yeah, so I, I, I met this uh, kid who kind of helped me not get bullied because he was bigger than other kids. And uh, he taught me how to cuss. And he, and, and also he had a, a love for art and drawing. And so we started making comics um, on the playground and stuff like that. And, and that was like kind of the first sort of point where I felt like a connection with another human being at the school. Um, but then we transferred because my mom started teaching at high school. And so um, and then also I know my older sisters were having issues with the same school where uh, just a case in point of how the school ran. They didn't wear clothes that were happy all the time because my sisters were like starting to get into like Smiths and rock and roll, you know, <laughs> so they started wearing black. And I re- and there was ac- an actual chapel service where they and and for those who haven't gone to one of these schools like chapel is like a you know this is at like a school that's part of also a mega church hmm. and so you know you you've got hundreds and hundreds of kids in this giant auditorium and they put my sisters in front of the entire auditorium and said this is an example of how you don't dress wow um because this you know is showing depression and sadness and uh we don't you know we're supposed to all blend together as the body of Christ and dress the same. And like, you shouldn't dress in a way that makes people think you're, you're different. Um, and so after that experience, like my family very justifiably, like pulled us out of that school. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and so I went on to like kind of high school and public school and, and in the public school system, I met a ton of um, non-Christians who magically were good people and didn't yeah, really fit what had been told uh, throughout like this bubble that I had been raised in where it was like, you know, if you talk to non-Christians like this or like they're embedded in evil. And I was like, these are actually more, these people are more moral than the people I knew at the Christian school mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not all of them believe in God. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, and so, uh, so anyhow, so flash forward to like high school and I started getting into indie rock and uh, I, I dabble a little bit in like smoking weed and and, um, and just kind of typical kind of rebellious teenager type stuff. I, I start playing music in a band um, and at the time I still consider myself like a Christian, you know, but it, it, it kind of has become at that point like a thing where um, we're like. I, I would identify as a Christian. I would tell people I was a Christian, but I, but I just would call myself like a Christian who was kind of like, I, I, my issue was like, I, I kind of didn't care. Like <laughs> I knew it was real, but I didn't care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of my stance for a very long period of time um, until I was like in my early twenties. And uh, I, I had finally like sort of get like, you know, right out of high school, I, I dropped, I, I kind of didn't go the route of going straight to college. I, I sort of dropped out of the school system for a while and tried to kind of make it with my band mm-hmm. um, and was working like graveyard shifts at an AM PM <laughs> um, and just kind of playing music. Mm-hmm. And then I remember one time getting robbed at the AM PM at gunpoint and being like, okay, I could die at the same PM and, and be the person <laughs> who like, was trying to like start a band and working at an AMPM where I could like go to the local junior college and transfer out of this valley and transfer to, um, 
you know, get my art degree and actually like do what I think I should be doing, which was always kind of making comics. This might be a stupid question. Is an AMPM, is that like a convenience store or what? what is that? Oh my gosh. Okay. I forgot about that. So, and I remember this from working at AMPM. It's a BP. It's a, a, okay. a so they're uh, in California. And I think there's like two other areas in California uh, or not in California, but on the Pacific um, coast that call it um, AMPM. And it actually is owned by British Petroleum. Okay. But when they tried to change the name because AMPM had been its own kind of franchise out here, um, Uh and I think it's owned by Arco at the time, but when they tried to change it to say BP, a bunch of um, people were just like, I'm not buying British gas. (laughs) And uh, and so they just kept the name AMPM and Arco, even though it was just BP. And I guess to the the majority of other places but it's like a gas station like a mart got it okay so i just <laughs> i'm sorry i i when i talk to west coast people I'm, i always have no idea what they're talking about because i've never been to the west coast but <laughs> well it makes sense I, I i i have a similar thing where um you know sometimes i'll i'll like if somebody's from and any area that's slightly near like Chicago, I just instantly assume it just is Chicago, <laughs> like what I'm talking. So yeah, I get that. There you go. I'm like an hour and a half away from Chicago here. So yeah. yeah. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, so you must live in like a Frank Lloyd Wright building. And it's just exactly there's exactly. a bunch of cool cartoonists. That's all I know. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so um, so what was interesting like coming out of school though. And like when I went back to college was I was that kid in college because of my, my upbringing where I was like, I'm not going to let college, you know, um, I'm forgetting what that terrible movie is with the kid who, who God's goes, not dead. Yeah. God's not dead. <laughs> I was that kid except like imagine that kid with professors who aren't trying to do what that kid's professor was doing, <laughs> but the same response. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I was that kid who like, I was like, I don't care what you say. I'm going to believe in Christianity and God is, you know, the salvation of humanity. And they're like, yeah, I'm just trying to teach you like ge- geology. So <laughs> like, could we kind of get back to the lesson here? I wasn't saying anything about your beliefs, you know? Um, And I also was like, I would say like politically, probably like very like libertarian. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I wasn't quite Ayn Randian, like I had gotten (laughs) through that stage in like junior high. Yeah, yeah. But but I was definitely like more on the side of like the idea of like believing that like the best way to help society is to kind of like benefit, you know, the, the top and then it'll trickle down. And Ronald Reagan was great. Um, and then I started learning history. And and so for me, this was like sort of how I um, became an atheist was weirdly enough by learning history and science. Mm-hmm. Um, and now keep in mind, I don't think that would have caused me to be an atheist had the school I was ra- raised in, the Christian school, <laughs> um, not hedged their entire faith on like the idea that like this is scientifically provable it's fully rational and it's also like embedded in the history of America mm-hmm. and kind of tied conservatism into uh, the Bible, which I think for people who are familiar with the Bible would know like none of that, none of that is biblical, <laughs> but, um, but I was taught that was biblical. And so, yeah. or maybe I even confused it as biblical, but what was interesting mm-hmm. was because of that, when I started reading about the founding fathers, this is a very typical atheist story, <laughs> but when I read the founding fathers and I was like, wait a second, like 
Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian at by mm-hmm. any means. Like he kind of took like he had his own Jeffersonian Bible mm-hmm. and he wasn't a believer in the miracles of the Bible. He definitely didn't believe in Trinitarian uh, God. Um, and he was more of like a humanist. And then I, I read more and more and I was like, okay, like the only dude who really seemed to be a Christian was like Adams. <laughs> like there's yeah. not like a ton of, strong Christian like founders. Um, and so I was like, well, they lied about that. Right. And this is a typical atheist story in that sense too, where it's like one lie kind of made me go, well, what else are they lying about? Mm-hmm. And weirdly enough, it wasn't my college professors guiding me there because most of my college professors were like, believe what you're going to believe. Like, in fact, if that mm-hmm. helped you in life, cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a lot of this was can my I, own. Can I, um, oh. can I ask what school you were at? Oh, uh, Desert Christian Schools. Uh, oh, yeah. For so Christian. it was a Christian college. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. That was my elementary school. Oh, um, uh, okay, so, okay, okay. So yeah, I was at uh, initially at Antelope Valley College, which is like a local junior college. So at junior uh, colleges, you aren't having these hard, like, I, I can't imagine it being like one of those colleges where you're going to have a lot of those like hard atheistic professors. Cause, right, yeah. Um, but anyhow, I did finish up. So I started having some questions come up, like, and that's when I, 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 the other thing was like just having history professors. And then also because I was an art major, having to take some art history classes where I'm like, huh, there's this thing called a basilica and the whole structure of the building is for control and kind of reinforcing different class statuses. Mm-hmm. And it far predates the Christian use of it. But we use that building and we use those structures to kind of reinforce like power and poverty. Hmm. That's weird. (laughs) Yeah. So anyhow, so I start kind of having just these little thoughts where I'm like, huh, it doesn't seem like what they were saying was true altogether, but I still kind of believe in God and, and so on. And then I transferred to, um, I finished up at, at the junior college and wound up going to, uh, Cal state long beach. And part of why I did that was, um, I met, a cartoonist I admired a long time before that, uh, who had worked on this book, illustrated this book, um, Death, the High Cost of Living, which was mm-hmm. one of my favorites. <laughs> um, it was a Neil Gaiman book, but I just loved uh, his name's Chris Bicello. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was in high school, I was able to meet him. And he said, like, it, you know, I was asking for suggestions for schools because at the time there weren't like cartooning schools. Mm-hmm. Um and he was like, just Cal State Long Beach is great. Like uh, he he praised um, this guy, David Hadlock, um, and who was running the program there and just talked about like, you'll learn the foundations and, and learn how to draw there. And that's really what you need to do if you're going to do comics. So okay. so I transferred there uh, also because I couldn't afford like a, a really expensive private college like Art Center, you know. Sure. So I transferred there. I moved to Long Beach and... Um, and at that point, like right after I had transferred, this is like, well, at this point, I'm like in my early 20s. I know I'm kind of bouncing around. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, but in my early 20s, I, I moved there and then my father uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, and then I for the for about that year, I kind of watched as as my dad uh died of cancer, wow. like went through treatments and um, it just wasn't, you know, working. And so like, I'm, I'm going to school and I'm kind of working on this stuff and I'm having these questions about my faith already, because not only is the history weird, but now I'm starting to, on my own, read books on evolution and not like atheistic books, just basic books mm-hmm. on evolution that weren't written by Christians. Mm-hmm. And 
um I start realizing like, huh, like, okay, they talked about the fossil record being a big problem with evolution, but then it, and I remember also being taught as a kid, like, like a whale. They, and I remember specifically, they used to cite a whale as being like the one, like just dead proof that evolution is wrong <laughs> because they don't have all the stages of the whale. And ironically, they harped on that at the school I went to. And so that's the first thing I looked at was like, huh, I wonder if that thing about the whale they said is true. <laughs> and then I, I look it up and it's like, oh, they have every single stage of the <laughs> whale. In fact, that's like the worst example you could bring up to like an evolutionist because they have like from land mammal to like, it, it's crazy. They have every single stage. There's no gap in that. Like, there's only a few animals like that and that they actually picked that one. Hmm. Um, and so I found that out. I'm like, okay, so they were lying about that, huh? <laughs> so um, so then I'm having that happen. And then I'm also going through the, the sort of crisis of faith with, you know, obviously suffering, which is like, you know, I, here's my father who's like this very devout Christian and he's dying a very painful death Mm -hmm. um because of pancreatic cancer and i'm going to the hospitals and um at this point by the way i also am not like this great christian kid like i smoke cigarettes (laughs) and uh and um and uh so i used to find this spot in the in the hospital to like smoke cigarettes like where all the nurses smoke so if you're Mm -hmm. a smoker and you ever need to find a spot at a hospital (laughs) talk to nurses but um so i'm in my mind that nurses smoke so often by the way i i I honestly think it's because of the crazy amount of stress oh no i know i mean i'm I'm married to a nurse like i get it but still like you've seen what smoking does to people (laughs) oh totally yeah well and i mean this is a little ironic too it's like my my dad's dying of cancer and literally to cope with it, I'm sneaking out at the hospital to smoke cigarettes, which is sure. a little strange and yeah. intuitive too. But yeah, so I'm like smoking outside of the hospital, just trying to kind of pray and get through it. And I'm not really feeling a connection with God. Hmm. And uh, and I'm, you know, at the time, I'm not really a part of like a church. There's a church I go to locally, but it's like I'm not really going to like Bible studies or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And um by the time my dad died, uh, I, I kept telling him I would see him in heaven. And um, by the time I actually watched him unplug from a machine and like watched him take his last breath mm-hmm. and I was in the room, I only kind of chose to be in the room because my mom was going to go in alone. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't let my mom be the only person in this room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and of course, I'm telling him I'll see him in heaven. And while I'm doing that, I at that point just knew I was lying. Hmm. Um, and I looked at my dad and when he was dead and I was like, he's not anywhere else. I, this is a person I loved and that they're just dead. Like they're gone. Yeah. Um, and I want to think they're somewhere else, but they're not. And so I just like realized, like, I, I just don't believe in God. Hmm. And so for about another year, I just kind of pretended to believe in God. And, um, and then I went all in new atheist. <laughs> so I started getting mad because I started reading more. And the more I read, the more I felt like it was an intentional lie and that the whole thing was a cult that I had been a part of. Yeah. And the more distance I got from it, and this is why I'm actually, it's funny. Um, I, I mentioned that I was really excited about your book because I knew it would tie in. Um, once I, once I read it, um, I knew it would tie into my story because Ironically, I even started coming up with hatching a plot to write a book 
that was going to be called uh, Sunday School for Atheists. <laughs> and it was going to bring up a lot of the stuff you're very head on confronting in that book. Um, but I remember like I, I started really reading the Bible as an atheist, I think more than I'd ever read it. Because I realized like my understanding of the Bible was mostly from like what I had been taught in Sunday school and a very like childlike view of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so then I started getting into all those problematic chapters because, of course, if you're going to like reread the Bible, you're going to start in the Old Testament. <laughs> and when you start in the Old Testament and you take away the veneer of like Sunday school stories, you know, like the account of Noah is not like it's it's tough. It's not an easy thing to read. It's like mm-hmm. literally watching the entire earth get annihilated except for four <laughs> people. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of passages, you know, that are, are really disturbing where, you know, like genocides of entire <laughs> people um, are commanded. And, and it, like, you know, like God is literally telling people to wipe out women and children. It's 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 there's a lot in the Old Testament that's very difficult. And I started reading for real, like without any extra book, you know, to interpret it. I was just like, what does the Bible actually say? Mm-hmm. And I just became horrified with it. And so I, I joined, I, I would say I kind of joined the new atheists philosophically. And that's when I like started reading Hitchens and Dawkins and all the heavy hitter new atheists, which it, it's funny in, in retrospect, I could have gotten into deeper atheists, although I still like Hitchens, <laughs> but I, I could have gotten into like deeper level um, atheists uh, than those, but they were kind of my route into like full out atheism. And then I just I just became convinced that the whole thing was fiction, that it was a control mechanism for a, a political party, and um, and I kind of abandoned my faith. So that's like sort of how I changed my mind first. <laughs> sure. Um, so what's weird is I then changed my mind later, um, <laughs> and so that's the tough part of this conversation. But um, but anyhow, so one thing that helped me change my mind from that from full out atheism. Uh, first off, it was not Christians like the Christians that I knew who were like eager to fight and argue and would get really easily offended if I talked about evolution did not change my mind. I will just be clear about that. Um, Imagine that. Yeah. Um, and I and I find that a lot of Christians uh, now that I am saved, like and I have changed my mind, I, I do really having keep in mind like this is like. I then spent 15 years as a dug in atheist. So I want to be really clear about how unhelpful that approach is with atheists. <laughs> um, I think the best approach with atheists is just to have a conversation and to realize that um, truth doesn't negate truth and to kind of be uh, more like Luke in the sense of like murder bears, moonshine and mayhem engage with the difficult stuff within the Bible, engage with the stuff that's uncomfortable to talk about and theologically hard to grapple with and be honest. Like, don't, don't be the teacher. Cause I've taught college too. And I remember, um, one of the best pieces of advice I got before teaching a class was to, um, not ever pretend I knew something I didn't when you're teaching a classroom because they will <laughs> read it. And then you've lost the respect of the classroom. Sure. Um, and so, I, what what ended up kind of helping was first off like life experience because at that point not just as an atheist but I, I I started reading a lot of philosophy and of course got into existentialism and um and through existentialism like you know I started with like Nietzsche and Sartre and 
um, just reading as much as I could about existentialism. And it just seemed to be true where it was like the, the, the basic premise being like, there is no purpose. Uh, we're kind of an accident as people. And so what we have to do is just create our own purpose. Sure. Um, and it's fiction. I mean, we're kind of playing this game where we're creating a purpose in purposelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, as like a rational thinking person, uh, that led me to some pretty dark areas, which I think the point of existentialism in its inception was to lead you there. And mm-hmm. um, what I didn't even know at the time was that some of the earliest existentialists were actually Christians. <laughs> sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I kind of got heavily into existentialism and I was like, that's right. I create my own purpose as an artist. Um, my line, my art, uh, I'm, I'm making up. I think at the time I even used to say this as pretentious as it is. I'm making up for the absence of a God by creating worlds where there is a, a God-like sense of intention. Hmm. So in the chaos of the world as artists, we strive to create order and intention because there is no order or intention. Mm. And so as artists, we're mimicking what we desire, which is like the idea of order and intention, even though that's all fiction, right? Yeah. Um, and so I kind of went through life like that. Um, and then my wife and I moved to Portland, Oregon. But prior to moving, we had a reason for moving there, which was we were living in, the, in the, a rougher neighborhood in Long Beach. And um, I was... At the time, I had finished my BFA and uh, was was re-enrolled at my school because I really loved the program. And there were two teachers in particular that I wanted to um, do graduate work with. So I, I enrolled for my MFA and I got accepted. And I was in my first semester of an MFA program, which for anybody who's been through a master's program or an MFA program, it's pretty intense. Sure. Um, so I'm going through that. I'm like working on campus because there's a... Um, like they, they gave us a studio spot on campus. Um, that's like the master studio. And, uh, and um, my wife and I, who, who wasn't my wife at the time, um, who also, by the way, was an atheist. <laughs> um, uh, so it was my girlfriend at the time. And, and actually at this point, my fiance. But um, she and I are living in like a really bad area of Long Beach because we just neither of us have like wealthy families. We had to pay our own way through school. Mm. And so part of how we made it work was like we shared like a tiny studio apartment in like the worst area of Long Beach, (laughs) (laughs) which Long Beach is a weird city. It's like the worst area, but it's also like right next to all the coolest stuff. Um, So anyhow, so. One night I'm, I'm working late on campus. Um, I'm, I'm debating whether I should, um, should stay in graduate school because I, I have already started having some success with my art. Like I, I got a, a grant that was like this really prestigious grant in, uh, in the comic world called the Zarek grant. Cool. And, and it's like put out by like Peter Liard who created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it was like a huge thing because like it was a real um, it was like my first real attempt at doing a comic like seriously, not like the ones I'd make as a kid. Um, and uh, and because of that, like I, I didn't think I'd get the grant because people like, you know, um, that I really admired, like Derek Kirkham and um, uh, Jason Lutz and a lot of like really heavy hitter cartoonists had started with Zarek Grant. So I was like, I just don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It happened. I started getting press and uh, really being able to like make a living as an artist 
um, through like a mix of that and just my, my own stubbornness where I was like, I got a degree in this. I'm not going to make a living doing anything other than this. Mm. I just hunted for work and, and started, but it, it, but it was finally starting to kind of pick up to the point where I couldn't really justify being in graduate school because I didn't really want to teach. Um, so all of that's going through my mind this one night late at cam- on campus. And then I, uh, I headed back. Um, and at the time, I, I didn't even own a car because just the, the cost of owning a car uh, would have not allowed me to uh, go to college, like the cost of insurance, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, public transit, my way home one late night um, with my portfolio and uh, on my way to my apartment, I got beaten uh, to a pulp by like three um, men who followed me to my apartment and just beat the living crap out of me. <laughs> um, was it a mugging or they just randomly decided to beat some guy up? So it's a mix. Um, I mean, <laughs> they did steal my portfolio, which at the time I was keeping on an external hard drive um, and I didn't really understand the purpose of an external hard drive. So I had all my stuff stored on there, but I had no backup. Like the oh, no. was just so I could bring it to campus and work on it. So I lost about seven years of work. Um, And then in retrospect, it it turned out that it was an initiation. So it was like they kind of picked me because of the color of my skin and the location I was at, and that was part of their initiation. So they decided to pick me. I was lucky. Wow. Um, Yeah, so that – so what's weird is as an existentialist um, at the time – it relies a lot on like a faith in humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's what's one thing that will really destroy your faith in humanity is kind of being a victim of violent crime and having to go through months of like not being able to walk, um, not being able to have the status stuff that, you know, a lot of your friends might be around for, you know, where you're like, I'm an artist, you're an artist, we're all artists, we're all succeeding, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, to just have all of the fake things we kind of hedge our identities on sort of pulled away from you until you're just a raw human who's in need. Yeah. Um, and so what's weird is going through that experience um, and anyone who's been through, like, I feel like I, I lucked out, you know, I, I wasn't able to walk for like three weeks, but, wow. um, and then for about two years, I wasn't able to walk in public um, without feeling PTSD and like um, feeling like I, I might, I have to be prepared for like a fight. <laughs> um, but anyhow, so the psychological damage from that wasn't nearly as bad as like other people who've had wor- far worse happen, you know? Yeah. But it sure. was definitely enough to um, make us first off want to move. Um, and second off, like make me really doubt uh, human beings um, because people weren't helpful enough um, like, you know, it, I, I didn't have insurance at the time and, uh, you know, I'd have a friend, I had a friend who like collected pools of money to help. And so, uh, of every friend I had, they kicked in like $50, hmm. which when you're dealing with, you know, $20,000 worth of medical bills, um, is not very helpful. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. but what's sweet, you know, at the time, but it's just one of those things of like, well, human beings aren't really helping here. Um, <laughs> And uh, all is other people has told us. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so what was what was interesting was just like there was a lot of um, a lot of struggle and a lot of like kind of heavy stuff and and a lot of this um, is like a teaser for the second book too, which will get more into the kind of violent crime stuff. Sure. Um, 
but anyhow, so yeah, so I go through that. I end up being like on the California victim of violent crime program um, and just trying to piece my life together and also deal with just being helpless. Like, because when you, when you can't make a mark, like you literally can't make a mark, hmm. um, how do you make your existentialist mark? I mean, that's, that kind of makes it a very um, bleak belief system, you know? Yeah. Um. And so, so we kind of go through this and weirdly enough recover and I double down on my atheism. Like I'm mm. like, I, you know, like even in that, like it would be nice to think there's something greater, but this whole thing is, that would be fictional thinking. And that would be kind of to help me feel better. Right. And I've never been a guy. I mean, part of why I even had trouble in elementary school is I've never been a person who can just like believe something just because it's comfortable or it's the popular thing. Right. Um, or like, like a band that like everyone likes just because everyone likes it. I've always been the guy who's like, this band sucks. Like I, I don't care how many people think this band is great. In fact, that makes me want to double down saying it sucks. You know, do you remember uh, the five minutes at the turn of the millennium when everybody was convinced that Limp Bizkit was good for some reason? Oh my gosh. What was that yeah. about? <laughs> <sighs> New metal. Brain fever gripped us all. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, um, that's, that's actually a tough one. That could make me lose my faith in humanity today. <laughs> so, um, so anyhow, long story short, we, we moved to Huntington, uh, um, to like a, an affordable area in Huntington. And, uh, after like living with my, my girlfriend, actually fiance at the times family who kind of helped, helped me recuperate and stuff like that. I'm able to walk. We start getting our life together. Um, of course, that's emotionally impactful on my wife as well, right? Sure. Um, who at the time was my fiance, but like it was traumatic, I think, for her in the middle of the night to get, you know, her bloodied fiance like knocking on the door, being like, yeah, "Call one no one one," you know. Um, and so we we moved to Huntington, and then in Huntington, I start kind of getting my career moving again, and like the the stuff for numb is really picking up, so I'm starting to do. Um, interviews. And then I actually get a book deal for my first graphic novel um, called Jacob's Apartment with like this publisher called NBM Publishing. Mm. So things are just looking great. Um, And then I have a neighbor um, in Huntington who like basically locks me in his apartment and tries to murder me. Oh, wow. This is crazy. But this is all within the span of like a year and a half. Um, and the nice thing is, uh, because of the fact that these were all like incidents where the police were involved, there's police records to back it up, which is kind of mm-hmm. cool. Um, but it is weird and weird to think about. So, so then I'm like, uh, I, I have this neighbor who I guess had not been taking his medication, kind of who's talking to like a dead computer in the corner of his uh, apartment. Um, try to kill me and narrowly escaped that. And then we again are having to file a police report. Um, and at this point, my wife and I had been talking about Portland, Oregon, because for people who are kind of cartoonists, like that's the dream. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so at this point, we're like, well, we talked to the police and the police were basically like suggesting we move mm-hmm. um, because if they put the guy in jail, he'd still need to go to um to court and I keep in mind, I'm glossing over this huge. So it's not like a 10 hour <laughs> podcast. Um, but anyhow, so like, because of that, we, um, that incident, we're just done with California and living in 
because because we're both like artists like my wife is a kids book artist too and so we were just like with an art budget in california we're just gonna keep living in neighborhoods where stuff like this keeps happening sure. you know yeah. or yeah. we're gonna move to a place where we can afford to live and so we moved to portland oregon and we did it pretty quickly um mm-hmm. And so that move, like the very first part of two stories kind of takes place right at that move, um, where it's like right after that move, we had kind of lived in Oregon. We met a lot of cartoonists. I met a lot of my heroes too, a lot of um, cartoonists I really admire, some who I'm still friends with. Like even when we stayed there, um, initially it was from a comic convention. Like, so we stayed with Graham Annabelle who like directed box trolls <laughs> later on. But at yeah. the time was like a friend uh, from a comic convention who was just like, you want to check out Portland, come stay with us. And we got just this view of like this great city where like they have like a comic month where it's literally like the entire month is dedicated to comic books and just cartoonists everywhere and local art galleries showing cartoonists and indie publishers all over the place. You have like, top shelf and dark horse. Cool. So it's like it's just like this thriving kind of thing, and I and I start meeting artists, and um, but then what's weird is I'm I'm still dealing with you know some of the PTSD from being jumps, oh, <laughs> and yeah. and then the extra PTSD from the neighbors. So like I don't trust any of my neighbors. <laughs> I'm locking doors like twenty locks, you know. Yeah. Um, I, like when I'm walking out at night, I like I didn't feel comfortable, so I like bought like a pocket knife that I keep in my pocket. Wow. So anytime I was walking in a city, I'm just holding a pocket knife, just ready, like mm-hmm. ready to pounce. Like if anyone does anything, which I, in retrospect is definitely a PTSD thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also dealing with just severe anger issues. And a lot of the anger starts moving towards Christian and Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I start hatching that crazy plan to write like Sunday school for atheists. <laughs> and I'm like, reading just getting knee deep in atheistic books um and and meanwhile also getting really getting to know all the cartoonists in the city but my wife starts getting hit by these massive panic attacks Hmm. Um, and uh this wasn't like entirely unexpected because her family um a lot of members of her family have panic disorder Mm -hmm. But um, for me at the time, especially as like an existentialist, I just felt like mental health is like a kind of it's, it's all in your head anyway. Like all of existence is in your head. Mm. Um, your purpose is in your head. And like you definitely have more control over your mental health. This was my thought at the time. Mm. Um, and like, heck, I mean, we just went through all this crazy stuff and through grit and perseverance. You know, it's like I'm able to walk. We built, you know, <laughs> I built back my client base like, you yeah. know. And so it's like this idea of like self-determination and self-determination and that, that being in a way to kind of get over mental health issues. Yeah. Um, there is kind of a weird contradiction there though. I mean, maybe, maybe you were headed in this direction, but there is yeah. kind of a weird contradiction there of saying that like, you know, it, the human mind is entirely material and yet it's somehow capable of overcoming its essentially material problems. 100%. <laughs> um, so yeah, so what was weird was, I mean, we, we you know, like had a really nice apartment complex, way better than what we could have afforded. You know, like I remember it being a big deal. We had like a washer and dryer unit. You know? But <laughs> yeah. my wife's getting these panic attacks and um, I'm getting more and more angry, which is probably assisting in her having panic attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And also, honestly, like she had been through some trauma there, too, where it's like each of these incidents, she's on the sidelines, you know, dealing with the aftermath. Right. Of like, yeah. you know, um, and so we kind of proceed until like my wife has panic, like a, a panic attacks to the level where she can't function, like she can't even go to work. Wow. Uh, she can't get out of bed. Um, and meanwhile, I'm trying to do like freelance and build my career and and kind of. At the time, I'm I was sort of the main um, income for my family too. I, I've I've been that um, since since starting as an illustrator, hmm. and so it's like I didn't really have like a cushion. So it's like if I don't get you know the next freelance gig, like we're we're done. Um, and so eventually it just got unsustainable. Like I, I got very frustrated as a caregiver. I wasn't like a really perfect caregiver um, mm. because I, and I hadn't read enough about panic disorder. So my attitude was kind of like snap out of it, you know, mm-hmm. which is if anybody reads up on how to deal with mental illness and panic disorder, that's not a really effective way. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or just being like, it's not real. It's all in your head. Like, oh, that's not very helpful for somebody going through um, mental health issues, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and keep in mind, I'm also a person who's been prone to depression since uh, since a really young age, too. Sure. And so I should know better, you know, yeah. especially at the yeah. time. But I'm just full of rage and anger um, at, like, people and uh, at Christians because uh, I feel like I had been finagled. And... Um, and then now my wife is in this scenario where she can't take care of herself and I'm caregiving for her. And at, it, it eventually got to a point where, and I wasn't caregiving well enough. And so it got to a point where her family came and helped and then eventually took her back to California with them because she just couldn't function, you know? Yeah, sure. But then keep in mind, I don't have a car. I don't really even have a license at this point. I'm kind of stuck in... Portland, Oregon with our dogs and the bills of the um, apartment that we both moved to and all of that stuff on my own. Mm-hmm. And I start getting plagued with um, this thing that's been plaguing me far before, which was the part of existentialism that I didn't really get into. Hmm. But it's like the end part of existentialism for me was I never understood the interpretation that existentialists had about making your own purpose. Hmm. Uh, Because it always felt like, okay, so the whole reason to be an existentialist is you're just basing things on like cold, hard logic. Right. And so if if there is no purpose and it's meaningless, then why would you choose to play pretend? Yeah. And make a meaning. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's always been my beef with atheistic existentialism. It's like if you create the own meaning for your life, then your your meaning is no less imaginary than God was, you know? Exactly. And um, and I was yeah. one of the weird existentialists that was really bothered by that. Like huh. I didn't I didn't. I, and I don't know if that's weird, I guess, but, but <laughs> I was really bothered by that because that didn't make logical sense. Yeah. What made logical sense to me and this is so dark to say this made logical sense, um, but it made logical sense to me for people to off themselves because it just was like, why, like, why would you choose? Like, if you're playing a board game where you know the end, yeah, um, and you and you don't think there's any meaning other than meaning you create, like, why not just call it? You know, like yeah. I know the end of this game and it's not a great ending, so let's just end it. <laughs> you yeah. know. 
Yeah, so, well, I, I, I might be totally making this up because I don't have the information in front of me, but I, I feel like I've read about <laughs> there there have been studies that have found like people struggling with depression tend to have a more objectively accurate understanding of reality than quote unquote mentally healthy people. <laughs> yeah. And um, what which is crazy to think about. Like mental health is somehow somehow hinges on like delusion. <laughs> It, yeah, it's it is nuts to think about that. And what's interesting is, as a Christian now, I, I definitely think I don't think I was far off from the truth. And yeah. um, so, what's what's interesting is like this led you know to where where I start my book. And the reason I started my book with this was just kind of let people know the stakes and also let them know what kind of book this is. Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't want to like falsely lead people into a book and then sneak attack them with some heavy material. <laughs> but I just started pretty heavy. Um, yeah. But yeah. I, so what this led me to, you know, I was, I was in my apartment kind of feeling sorry for myself. Um, I had been boiling with this idea of like, what is the purpose of pretending anyway for years, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I finally given the perfect um, mental health dilemma, which is, you know, now I'm isolated and, mm. um, and I'm just stuck with my thoughts. And I finally go, you know what? I agree with that. I actually think there is no purpose. And I think the best thing for me to do would be to kill myself. So I I publicly transit my way to Burnside Bridge late at night. And I actually ended up uh, climbing up on the railing hmm. and willing myself to jump off. And what was weird was I couldn't. Hmm. And I was like staring down at the water over the edge of this thing. I I made sure I like looked, there's like a guard booth, you know, and I checked the guard booth to make sure the guard wasn't like paying attention. Mm. And, um, cause I was, tr- I was really freaked out about the idea of like the, like what if the guard came out and was like, Oh dude, don't, you know, cause I'm, I'm not doing this for sympathy. Like I really just thought, no, this is like the time to kind of call it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and what was weird was I couldn't, and, and I just kind of got frozen and I would, I was really frustrated and kind of pissed about not being able to jump because I was like, this is what I believe though. Hmm. And I just was shocked by my lack of faith in my belief Hmm. Um, because I felt like the ultimate act of faith, if that's what I truly believed was to just kind of call it because there was really no purpose. So if there was no purpose, like it's kind of faithless to pretend there is purpose. Yeah. Um, So I ended up commuting home and kind of, at the time, I, you know, because I think a lot of the trauma too I had had before, I was occasionally doing things like hitting walls, weird stuff that I never did as like a teenager. Like I didn't really like punch walls as a teenager. Yeah. But as a grown man, I was doing that. Um, yeah. And I was just thinking like how frustrating I, I just felt really frustrated because I was like, here I am like this, this person who's like a fan of rationality. Um, I had worked out that there's no purpose. Keep in mind, I, you know, when you're, Another thing with mental illness is kind of convincing you that irrational things are very rational. Hmm. <laughs> um, but but what, what was weird was just like the inability to do it. Um, and that had me start thinking. And I remember, so I so then I continued to kind of be, be isolated in Portland. Um, and I just kind of worked through it, got my, uh, like sort of put that behind me, although I was still occasionally Googling ways to kill myself painlessly, Hmm. but very casually, it was weird because it was just like, almost like if you kind of knew something just was what you should do, you're like, okay, I'll I'll keep that in mind. And then I kept doing um, 
like I, I built back, you know, doing illustrations and things were actually like looking up. And yet I kept I, I constantly was being nagged by this idea. Um, and what was weird was I was also at the same time, like really good friends. Like I had grown up um, around Alan Noble, mm-hmm. who you're friends with as well. Yeah, um, we grew up in the same uh in the same city and like we were actually in bands at the same time. So like when I was doing that whole band thing, his band was one of the bands we used to play with all the time. Oh, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so we were like, you know, young, very young adults, like very young adults uh, around the same time. Um, and actually late teens too, we were friends and, Mm. um, we had kept in touch because Alan had me do art and stuff for his, this, this is back when he was doing hip hop, (laughs) but he had me do a couple of, um, their album covers and stuff. And then we get in these occasional conversations about theology and, uh, and then I, I also had another friend named Chris Oatley who was like, uh, uh, and I was doing a podcast at the time for illustration mm-hmm. called Big Illustration Party Time. Mm-hmm. And um, so Chris was like a friend because he did podcasts too, and he was a believer. And I used to just get in these long, you know, discussions with them. And one of my favorite things about talking um, to those two in particular was when I bring up sort of my issues with Christianity, like most of the time they just listen and sort of hear it out and say what they actually thought, but they weren't like frightened when I was like, yeah, I think evolution's true, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they would actually be honest about it and be like, you know, sometimes I grapple with that. Like, or, or I do think maybe that's a way that God created the world. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they'd be more like open about it. And then I had some family members that like, I would bring that up and they'd get furious and just be like, I'm not going to hear this like nonsense, you know? Yeah. Um, so anyhow, where was I heading? Oh, okay. Here. <laughs> Sorry. I knew this would be a little rambly cause it's a lot to cover, you know? Sure. Um, so, uh, so basically like, um, finally I, I, I start, um, I, I, my friend Chris actually in particular was like, dude, okay. You know, we were having one of these discussions where I was talking about, uh, the God of the Bible being evil. I thought he was evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so even if he were, it's a pretty typical atheistic thing where it's like, even if he is real, like I wouldn't follow that God, right? Because he's yeah. evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember having this conversation about that and some of the theological issues of the Bible and especially about evolution versus creation. And my friend, Chris Oatley, just hears me out for a really long time, which is weird. Um, cause in retrospect, like that must've been very hard to just kind of sit back and listen to <laughs> nicely mm-hmm. when, it, um, and he sends me this book called the language of God by Francis Collins. Mm-hmm. And then also this other book called, um, uh, searching for God knows what by Donald Miller. Oh yeah. And he was like, just read these books. He's like, just check them out. Let me know what you think. Um, and keep in mind, I was raised in like a religious family. So I'd read, um, you know, a lot of C.S. Lewis and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, um, but uh, there was something about Francis Collins that really helped me think about evolution and Christianity. Mm. Um, and it was particularly helpful, too, because it kind of explained why I kept getting really pissed when I talked to Christians about it. Oh, yeah. Um, because it kind of so Francis Collins is the guy who like mapped the human genome. Oh, OK, sure. Uh, um, but he's also a believer mm-hmm. um, and he believes in like kind of evolution being the the language of god right like the the way god made people Mm -hmm. um but he kind of broke down like why christians and people who are talking about science 
conflict often when it comes to like, well, that's just a theory, mm-hmm. you know, kind of explaining like a scientific theory is not just like a theory like, hey, I'm going to posit this idea. <laughs> right. Um, and he also got into sort of the mechanisms of how strange it is that if, um, and this is the irreducible complexity thing, but on, on a more, I think, reasonable level, because I growing up, it was always the, the irreducible complexity story was always um, using an eyeball as uh-huh. an example. Again, I don't think my educators at the time understood what they were trying to argue against because like the the eyeballs one of the again one of the weird things where they have like all levels of uh reducible complexity found in nature for the eyeball yeah but that was brought up as like you can't reduce an eyeball and it's like you you can Um, (laughs) but what was interesting was collins brought up a really good thing which was about the, the idea of reductive science where it's like you know in theory, you should be able to reduce down to the smallest item and have the explanation get simpler and simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's weird is, and what he found really fascinating was when he when he had broken down the human genome and he realized that like at, at a, a smallest molecular level, we actually get semiotics, which is not uh, simple. <laughs> <laughs> um, semiotics is like a language and language is very complicated. Mm. And I found that really compelling just to start thinking about some of the um, some of the reasons I was believing that God was fiction. Another thing that I found odd, like when reading Donald Miller, was um, reading a Christian who wasn't a hardcore conservative yeah, <laughs> um, and was actually a good writer. And keep in mind, this is before the atrocity of that film was released <laughs> based oh, on. Oh, you're Blue not Light. a fan of that one? <laughs> I didn't like the movie adaptation. Yeah, I, actually, maybe... I actually really dug the movie. I, I know oh. that I'm kind of in the minority there, I guess. But uh, oh, I thought well, it was... <laughs> I didn't mean to trash a movie that they might have liked. I did love Blue Like Jazz, the book, though. Um, yeah. and, and I did find it really refreshing to read a Christian writer who was artistic and thoughtful and weirdly enough and not searching for God knows what book, he brought up some really basic stuff that I thought was really useful too. He talked about, you know, if he basically starts it off by saying like, Hey, just for a second, pretend that the God of the Bible's real. Mm-hmm. And like if human beings were in a scenario where they were with a creator that told them their identity, that told them their purpose, that told them when what they created was beautiful, that basically gave them, you know, their, their, their reason for everything. And then you were withdrawn from that situation. What would the world look like? Hmm. You know, and he kind of painted this picture of like, you would probably end up in this scenario where everyone is like kind of in a lifeboat scenario where they're all, you know, competing for relevance and for, like beauty and for significance and trying to kind of find their significance. And then you probably find that they're not really succeeding at it. Right. Mm, yeah. um, he, he, he paints it of course, way more eloquently than I did, but sure. um, he also brought up just like how weird it is that people wear clothes, <laughs> which I still think is a pretty good point. And it is weird that human beings, right. Like in a, in a biological framework, like why they wear clothes, like that's a weird evolutionary choice sure. or, you know, I mean, my uh, dog wears a sweater sometimes, so. 
That's true. I, I have like two pugs. Well, had two pugs, and and like one of the pugs, we we always spit sweater on. So that's true. <laughs> Maybe we just have really obnoxious owners um, giving us sweaters. Um, but yeah. So anyhow, like so, these books just started to change my thinking in the sense of just allowing different viewpoints and hearing from a viewpoint that was like not trying to say like evolution is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um. And keep in mind, like my hobby at this time was like watching debates, you know, like sure. I, um, I've always been a nerd for like that kind of conflict. I like, <laughs> I like, like watching debates. So I'd watch, you know, like Hitchens debate creationists. And, um, uh, so, so what, what was fascinating me was just to realize like there was a window where you didn't have to deny truth or what you perceive as truth if Christianity was true. Hmm. And this window where, like maybe there isn't a literal seven days of creation and another window where, you know, you can actually be aware of the history of the United States and not like pretend it was some Christian nation. Um, and yet also be a Christian, you know, I don't know if that's for me, that was profound and in, in retrospect is kind of silly. Cause I know for a fact, there's a lot of Christians out there <laughs> that believe that, but you know, yeah. Um, so that started to make me think, but I still couldn't rationally come to grips with the Christian narrative. Um, I think for atheists, the biggest, hardest part, and I think for Christians, when we say this, we know it's absurd, but it's true, right? But it's the idea of like, why would a God send himself to forgive him, like to forgive sins that he himself didn't want? Like he made creations and then sends himself to save those creations so that he can appease himself. <laughs> it's a yeah. weird premise, you know? Um, and I couldn't get over that. And I just thought it was the most absurd thing. But what was weird was there was a night where I started, like I, I was doing my artwork late at night because I'm a night owl. And um, I was working on some illustrations, I think for, um, I think at the time I was doing like uh illustrations for the root for this guy, Lawrence Ross, like we were doing like an editorial cartoon. Okay. Um, and I was working on that and I was feeling panic about the outside world. And so I was like triple checking the locks mm-hmm. and, uh, just also like, you know, having that same, even though things were starting to work out, like my, my fiance and I were, were starting to talk more over the phone and we were kind of going to work out a way to, um, have me move or her move or whatever to kind of make it work out. So hmm. things were starting to look up and yet I still kept like wanting to look up ways to kill myself because I just philosophically thought that was the way. And I was still feeling this panic and fear. And I remember starting to think about it and just being like, okay, I'm going to just read what Christ has to say. Hmm. So I've been like reading all this stuff, like that's old Testament stuff and like nitpicking the Bible for kind of things but i want to see what it is because at the same time i'm just kind of mystified by why like so many members of my family believe in this thing you know mm-hmm. um and i started thinking about like also just how much hope that would give you to like to have this idea that there's like a purpose you know hmm. um but just not being able to like wrap my head around it like meaning like i still just can't pretend right right um, and so finally I, I, it was like one night where I was like triple checking the locks and I, and I started reading, um, these passages in the new Testament, like come unto me and I will give you rest. Um, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. 
Um, you know, just knock and the door will be open to you, right? Yeah. Basic um, biblical truths, you know, and um, and just talking about the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And I and I was just like thinking about my life, and I was realizing like I'm full of nothing close to peace. Hmm. Um, I'm full of panic. I don't trust people. I don't trust. Uh, you know, I don't even trust like the purpose for my own life, even though things were looking good. I had a publishing deal, you know, I was going to get my book out, which by the way, that book was criticizing Christianity too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so what I did was I just like thought back to like some stuff my parents talked about, not that I heard at Christian school, you know, where they were just talking about how you just kind of pray to Christ to reveal the truth. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And you just kind of knock on the door and it's open. So I literally just prayed and was like, I can't believe this nonsense. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if it's true, I want to know. Mm-hmm. I, I like sincerely want to know. And um, because I like that description of like peace that surpasses all understanding. And I and I am tired and I, I could use rest, you know. Mm-hmm. And what's weird is... Um, this is the part that's undescribable, but it's like no amount of logic got me there. Mm-hmm. I just like, I wound up feeling a total peace overcome me and it was weird. It was almost like a breath. And I'm a person who was raised um, in a very like, you know, there's a little bit of mysticism and Christianity, but the, the version of Christianity I was brought to believe did not believe in faith healing or anything. Sure. Um, anything remotely like in fact if anything like i said the the school i went to was all about works it had little to do with like the holy spirit in fact they didn't really talk much about the holy spirit but i felt the holy spirit and that was really weird and it's weird to even say as a skeptic um but i felt the holy spirit and the weird thing was the next day i woke up convinced that god was real and I literally like started reading through all those passages, those problematic passages, and they just kind of made sense. And mm. it didn't make sense why they made sense. That's really interesting. Um, and what was weird was then I started thinking, okay, so my fiance is is an atheist. And now how am I going to tell her <laughs> yeah. this thing? Yeah, for sure. It took me a week and a half to tell her. And then when I told her, it turns out she had become a Christian. No kidding. Like a month prior and was afraid to tell me because she thought I'd be angry about it. That is insane. And so what's weird is then it was more of like, um, and I mean, you know, this is a teaser for the second book, but my first book starts off with me searching for ways to kill myself completely, uh, uh, completely painlessly Yeah. on Google. And the end of the book, uh, the, the second book, I'm going to give it away. <laughs> it will still be awesome. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but it's me Googling how to find a church that isn't bought and sold and owned by the Republican Party. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because like what's weird is um, ever since then, I've dedicated my life to Christ. And even why I wrote this book, like I abandoned that book. Um, I I haven't had great things happen since becoming a Christian. Like I actually lost a book deal. Hmm. Um, We actually ended up, you know. I did finish grad school and stuff, but it's like, it's, you know, it's like most salvation stories. And I think most Christians are aware of this. It's not like it makes your life a million times better, <laughs> but it, it does make a massive difference in life to know there's a purpose hmm. and to be able to commune with, um, 
with a creator who like somehow gives me power and strength and it's a really mystical like non-logical thing Hmm. um so in your show you usually ask like whether something is um you know like logical or emotional on the changing mind and so like my first changing of my mind was logical Mm -hmm. like to go from christianity tm i guess (laughs) to um to like to atheism i think is a very logical choice Mm -hmm. um and what's weird is this is definitely very emotional and spiritual like the second version um and goes beyond explanation and it's very hard but i do think it's important now like when i'm as a christian trying to share my testimony or talk to people about god to remember that like paul never asked christians to uh argue christianity with people right he asked us to say the reason we have hope Hmm. and that's it like we're just called to say the reason we have hope like say the reason for the hope within us i think that's the origin of apologetics right for sure yeah so it's like to me i think that speaks volumes where like i think trying to pretend that it's logical is um is crazy because like the wisdom of god is foolishness to man Hmm. And, um, I mean, that's what inevitably is going to happen if we try it. I'm not, I'm not saying we should, uh, disengage logically, right. but I think we shouldn't downplay the importance of the Holy spirit because I was not saved because somebody argued me into it. I was right. saved because the Holy spirit took mercy. Like God took mercy on me and revealed hmm. that's the only way it happens. I think so. Like even in this book, I'm not trying to like, o- um, over the top, like convert people. Because I don't think I can. I don't. Sure. I don't think I can. I don't think any of us can convert people. I think we can just talk about our experience and tell truth, and then truth won't negate truth. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a really long-winded thing, and I, I apologize if I've been super <laughs> rambly. <laughs> we're all over yeah, the place. We're, we're nearing the two-hour mark here, which um, typically I try to try to keep it to an hour. But you uh, you had a lot to say, so I just kind of let you go. Um, I will say, you know, to bring things full circle and, uh, you know, uh, promote your book a little more for you. I really did appreciate that book, uh, that about the book, that it doesn't really try to present itself as anything other than one man's story. Um, and it feels very authentic that way. Um, you know, I, (laughs) even outside of like the Christian world or whatever, I, I feel like there is uh, a really easy ditch to fall into with memoir, uh, which is, you know, that that uh, kind of vibe of like, my experiences are super important. And I or like, I'm the guru, I'm gonna, you're gonna learn everything you need to know from my life or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I did not get that at all. Um, like it, it really, <laughs> your book really manages to walk that tightrope of just being this is my story. I'm going to be as honest about it as I possibly can and not pretend it's more than it is. Um, and it's mm-hmm. really all the stronger for that. Um, like it, <laughs> um, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's gut punches from, from page one and, um, not in a bad way. Um, I, well, I that think, was, what's that? that? Was, sorry. That was something I, um, I really appreciate that. And I'm glad that it reads that way because one of the things coming into this book that I realized that I love about um, autobio as a genre, Mm -hmm. I also realized like I have a weakness in, which is like your, your tendency as a human, right? When you're looking back on your own story is just to like glorify yourself. Like Mm -hmm. I'm this great being, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what I, 
what I did to try to kind of counteract, and I'm hoping I was successful at it, like the the self-glorification part of um, Autobio was like, I tried to find vulnerable areas to just lean into and then if anything, exaggerate um, where I was the bad guy. For sure. As opposed to glorify myself and kind of play down um, character flaws. I was like, no, I'm going to amplify character flaws. <laughs> um, and part of that's just like, you know, like I love Harvey Picar. Um, I think he's a great writer. And Not one of my favorite things about him is you wouldn't read that and be like, I want to hang out with this guy. You know? <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and you do that very well because it never, to me, it never feels like it descends into like self-flagellation. It's, um, it's just, it's just very honest about this is what it's like to be a human, you know, um, to struggle with the frailties of, of being human. Yeah. And I, I really appreciated that about your book. Um, but yeah, let's, um, let's wrap up real quick. I have, uh, I have three questions. I try to close every episode with, um, these questions of how do we know truth and how do we know ourselves? Um, so first of all, Joshua, what is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? So it's weird. I, I think, um, I've heard this answered so eloquently by so many of your guests. Um, <laughs> I'm going to take a shot at it. Um, I mean, I definitely think, you know, I, I, I've heard this said on here before, but it's totally true. It's like seeing my son, you know, it's like his identity. He's like really good at math. I'm like, that That doesn't make any sense. Like like his mom is not good at math. His dad is not good at math. We're, we're all like humanities people. And yet, like, he's really good with math. I'm like, I don't know where that comes from. It's your dad's genes, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I, I definitely think um, our identity is, I think we have an idea of what our identity is. And I think usually the more of an idea of our identity we have, the more off we are. Hmm. Um, but I think most human beings know they have an identity and are searching for it. Um and I think even when we find our identity, it's like, I think we definitely have something about ourselves that fights with it. Hmm. Um, so it's like, you know, I see this, especially in mental illness and mental health issues where, you know, people who suffer from depression or anxiety, like they know that like, like I, in my book, I, I, you know, paint it as like a, um, a dark cloud, you know, and, or like a dark ghost kind of creature that's like, just you know, tainting a room kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But most people I know who suffer from like mental health issues um, have a similar thing where they have like a name for it. Like it's like this, this thing that's like plaguing them that they know isn't them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, and I feel like that's kind of a little bit of how identity is where I think sometimes we have this idea of our identity and we know what it is, but we also have this tendency to accept an identity that isn't ours. Hmm. Um, I don't know. That's a really weird way to answer. So yeah, no. <laughs> but can we know it is a really interesting question. I don't know about that. You know? Yeah, this is a, this is a random question. Are you a video game guy at all? I am a retro video game guy. Yeah, I'm. I'm just curious if you played the the game Celeste at all. Ooh, no. <laughs> okay. You might appreciate it. I don't know. Um, it's it's very it's you know it's a fairly recent like indie game, but it's very retro in style. It draws pretty heavily from like Mega Man and on the NES and that sort of thing. Ooh, um, but that it, could be my jam. Yeah, it it draws both in its plot and its gameplay. It kind of draws from uh, this concept of like depression as a 
an entity um, living in you. It's it's a really fascinating game. It's you know it's it's very like old school eight bit gameplay, but with like a pretty serious adult story that complements the gameplay really well. It's very cool. You should check it out. I will. Um, <laughs> second, um, what is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? I definitely don't think we're blank slates. And I think uh, that school of philosophy can, can be pretty, pretty naive. And I think not, not observe, observing the world, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, and once again, I think being a parent helps with that, where it's yeah. like <laughs> you see your kids and it's not all like love and fluffiness coming out. It's like they, they learn very quickly to lie and, <laughs> and, uh, and are very like, really have to learn sharing like mm-hmm. they don't mm-hmm. they don't just get born with sharing in fact they get born with the, the reverse which is like that's mine mm-hmm. um so that's been interesting. but i definitely think um i think we each have our own stories um and and that's one reason i really love memoir it's it's a hard genre to write in and it's even harder to sell unless you know like if i were a major historical figure that <laughs> might um be an easier sell right sure but um but I do think one great thing about memoir, if like people really spend the time when they're writing it to uh, try to be as authentic and true as they can, I, I think what's neat is you're never going to have two of the same story. Hmm. Um, and and I, th- I think that's one fascinating, great thing about art. And my, my favorite thing about art is when it's authentic. Um, and so I definitely believe there is authenticity. I think we can feel like we're being authentic and we're not, but I definitely think there is some authenticity there that we can strive after mm-hmm. um and sometimes it just happens by not striving for sure yeah and finally what is truth how do you know truth and how do you know when you found truth that's such a great question for for this like this genre that i'm writing in you know where it's like i'm doing autobiography and one of the things that'll really fascinate people, it, it definitely has been fascinating to me, is how untrue I've been sometimes when I've thought I've been true. Hmm. Um, now, there's a million things in this story that are very authentic and true, mm-hmm. but there's also times where I was scripting it out and I'd include a person who wasn't there hmm. because I had mixed a memory with one that was really close, like from the same time. Hmm. Um, and that happened a couple times, like where I was like, but I remember it like this way. And mm-hmm. I talked to, um, in drafting this, I talked to a lot of friends too, because like, once again, my goal was to like, try to make it as true as possible. Sure. But what's amazing is like, even when you're trying and you're being perfectly honest to your own account of something, there's always a separate account. And I think that's fascinating um, that, you know, and I've heard that argument before that there really is technically no true story. Hmm. There's always like a side to it. Right. And so I find that really interesting um, in the sense of us as writers or authors trying to depict truth. But I definitely think there is a truth. I mean, as a Christian, obviously, I think that's that's God. I think Jesus is truth. But I think we 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 really struggle to grasp it. And um we're always viewing truth through shaded lenses, hmm. you know, does that make yeah. sense? No, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of uh, psychiatric research that has been done to prove how squishy and subjective memory is and how memories tend to change each time they're recalled. Um, 
you know, and then, and then we talk about, well, you know, cameras, microphones, those things record objective truth, but well, <laughs> all they can do is record a single perspective on them, you know, and if you put two cameras in the same room, they'll pick up different things. And yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, even in the Bible, like there's so many things that I find um, like I'm okay with ambiguity more. And I think that actually helps as a, as a Christian now, whereas I think like growing up, I was taught like, it's like this black and white solid thing. Yeah. And there are definitely things like I'm not, um, liberal theologically, like I'm re- liberal politically, but not theologically. Sure. But I mean, I mean, there are some things that are definitely black and white that, that shouldn't allow ambiguity in the Bible, but there's a lot that's like really ambiguous, um, and is mysterious. And I think like by pretending it's, not mysterious it, it kind of does us a disservice to like the beauty of it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um like almost like a i i knew some guys back in at csulb who are english um mfa people and they would analyze a poem to where it lost its poetry like it lost its beauty sure um and so it's like there's some poems that are just not meant to deconstruct like you know mm-hmm. and sometimes e cummings was doing stuff brilliantly and then sometimes he was just playing around with the medium you know yeah yeah for sure so, for sure yeah all right um well joshua it has been a real pleasure having you on the show thank you for coming on thank you for having me yeah um before we go real quick you want to just tell people one more time where they can find your book and where they can find you on social media or anywhere else Yes. Um, so two stories uh, by Joshua Kemble. It's K-E-M as in monkey, B-L-E. I just want to spell that out because it's a weird last name spelling. Sure. But yeah, you can find uh, find links to everything, uh, my social media and everything, basically at the main hub, joshuakemble.com. Um, and then also you can just, uh, right now, the best, most effective way to get this book is through Amazon because uh, that helps the rankings. And early on, that's that's definitely an important thing. So just search for two stories by Joshua Kemble, but you will also be able to get it at most um, uh, comic book stores and um, independent bookstores um, just by, by asking for it available through Ingram. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Amazon is the evil empire, but we are all its slaves. So (laughs) all hail our God, Amazon. Um, All right. Well, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington, or you can just go to my website, LukeTHarrington.com, and I will see you around. I ended my first book with the words no answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Only words, words, to be led out to battle against other words. Those are some of the last few lines uh, from C.S. Lewis's final novel, Till We Have Faces. Um, It's an underrated book, Uh, probably his least well-known novel, but um, I think his best. Uh, And I've always found that a really striking summary of Christianity's response to 
the problem of evil. Um, now, if you're uh, even a little bit familiar with um, theology and philosophy, uh, you've probably encountered the problem of evil, supposedly uh, originally formulated by the philosopher Epicurus, um, which I wrote a bit in the conclusion to my book, if you've been reading my book. So you might have heard this from me already. Um, but the problem of evil is, is this, um, why is there evil in the world? You know, if, if God is all knowing and all powerful and all good, why does evil continue to exist? Um, if he can stop it, but doesn't, you know, how is he good? If he would stop it, but can't, how is he God? Right. How is he all powerful? Um, and it's a conundrum, right? Um, there's not necessarily an easy answer. Um, but at the same time, it, you know, it raises maybe a, a slightly deeper question, which is the problem of recognition of evil, right? Like on what grounds do we call anything evil? You know, on what grounds do we say this is evil and this is good, right? If you're saying, you know, this is evil, you're saying that that is not how things ought to be. You're saying the universe should be a certain way and it's not. But on what grounds do you say that the universe should be a certain way unless something like good really exists? So then you're right back where you started, aren't you, with um, this universe that, you know just happens to exist. And for whatever reason, even though it's the only universe you've encountered, you're un unhappy with the way it presents itself to you. Um, which many would suggest is a strong argument that God or some similar source of this idea of good exists. Um, you know, and there's, <laughs> there's a whole lot of philosophical conundrums we could, uh, get into beyond that. But, um, the point is this, that there maybe isn't an answer for the problem of evil. Um, or at least there's no answer that would satisfy everyone, right? There's no intellectually satisfying answer and there's no emotionally satisfying answer certainly not in the form of something that could be put into words right if a child is in in a bed like dying of uh bone cancer or whatever and the doctor you know the doctor comes into the room and the child says you know why why is this happening to me there's no there's no answer the doctor could give the child that would satisfy him or her intellectually or emotionally like the only answer that child could have is the arms of their parent around them um and ultimately that's that's the answer that christianity gives to the problem of evil you know not a set of intellectual precepts that explain the existence of evil, not even um, an emotional argument for why evil is good, but 
God himself is the answer, that God came into the world to suffer evil with us. And that's ultimately what was really striking to me um, about what Joshua had to say in our conversation, was that ultimately there was no way he had to intellectually argue himself into Christianity. The only way he got there was the despair of living in a world with no meaning and then finding hope, you know, not in an idea or even in a feeling, but in a person. And I don't know. I mean, that's just, you know, something to think about. (laughs) I only present these things as something to think about. Um, you know, I've said, I've said before, uh, this is not, not a Christian show. Like, I'm not trying to hide my Christian faith, but I'm also not trying to make an evangelistic podcast here. I just, I, I just want to talk about these things. I just want to pick up these philosophical threads and chase them down wherever they may lead. Um, and these um, concluding thoughts are presented in a spirit of here's just what's on my mind this week. Here's what I've learned from the people I've talked to. Um, and you can take them or leave them. But I think ultimately that's one of the main things that keeps me tied to Christianity, even as my world is rocked by forces, both within and without the church. I, think there can be no satisfying answer to the problem of suffering than the one who lies down next to you and suffers with you. And anyway, that's all I have for this week. Um, If you like what I'm doing on the show, um, please take a second to log on to Apple Podcasts, give me a rating, give me a review. Um, if you write a review, I will read it and make you internet famous, uh, just like you always wanted to be. Um, you can call up your parents and say, Hey, you said I'd never amount to anything. Well, guess what? I just had this review. I wrote read on a podcast that reaches literally dozens of people, dozens, um, if you want to support me financially, um, there is a uh, site set up at ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com slash changed my mind. You can send me any amount of money uh, that is a multiple of $3. So you can send me $6 or $300 or $339, but you cannot send me $332. Those are the rules. I don't make them. I just signed up with Ko-Fi. Um, I really appreciate the people who have donated. Uh, at the moment, this is a listener-supported endeavor. I really appreciate you uh, pitching in to keep me on the air, on the internet, in the tubes, right? Keeping me in the tubes. Um, if you uh, don't want to just throw me money for no reason, but would still like to support me, you can buy my book. Um, 
If you have not heard, I have a book out. Uh, and yes, I do talk about the problem of evil a little bit in it. It is also a funny book, I'm told, and informative. Um, it's called Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed. Um, it's out from HarperCollins Christian Publishing uh, on their W imprint. It is uh, put out by a Christian publisher. It is written with more of a general audience in mind. So, you know, Christians, non-Christians, quasi-Christians, anyone out there who wants to learn more about the Bible, um, it would make an excellent Christmas gift, in my humble opinion. And I believe Amazon is still listing it for possible delivery by Christmas. So just throwing that out there, buy it for everyone on your list. That's an order. Um, let's wrap things up. I want to thank Joshua for coming on the show. Uh, please check out his graphic novel. I legitimately loved it. It's called two stories part one, uh, by Joshua Kemble. You can find it wherever fine graphic novels are sold and possibly also where trashy graphic novels are sold. I don't know, but it is, I would not call it trashy. It's a good book. Um, I want to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the podcast. They've got two other great podcasts you might enjoy. If you're a movie buff, check out The Commentarians. It's like Mystery Science Theater 3000, but without the jokes more like deep thoughts. Um, it's pretty good. Uh, they also have a podcast called faith and other oddities, which is a very funny and informative book about the Bible. I'm not involved with it, but it is in a similar vein to my book. Um, I want to thank, uh, Jonathan Clausen for editing the podcast. He's a talented man. Uh, my hat goes off to him for his hard work. Um, especially since he also manages a GameStop and it's the holiday season. Keep going, Jonathan. We all believe in you. Um, and finally, I want to thank you for listening to Change My Mind. I'm Luke T. Harrington, and please don't be afraid to change your mind. Mm-hmm.